0: As our children are being dismissed, I would invite you to open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27, you can find that on page 1108 in the Pew Bibles. So we are wrapping up the book of Acts. Next Sunday is our last sermon in it, so if you're new with us, welcome. Uh, we're at the tail end of a, about a 10-month series through the book of Acts, which tells the story of the early church and the spread of the good news of Jesus from Jerusalem to Rome and how the gospel began moving to the ends of the earth. I am immortal until my work is accomplished. Those words were penned by Dr. David Livingston. He was the 19th century uh, famous explorer, Scotsman, who went into Central Africa, where at that point no Europeans had ever been. And uh, in fact, Europeans at that point thought that most of Central Africa was just a big desert from the Kalahara Desert up to the Sahara. Um, But he found that it was teeming with life and teeming with jungles and teeming with people. And um, he he explored places no one had ever been uh, from outside of Africa. He was the first European to see Victoria Falls. He's the one who named it Victoria Falls after Queen Victoria. Um, it's estimated that he traveled over 26,000 or 29,000 miles on foot uh, all over central africa over his lifetime but what motivated uh, david livingston to travel through central africa wasn't primarily that he wanted to be an explorer and wanted to go places no you know person had gone before what was really motivating him was he was a missionary He wanted to tell people the good news about Jesus. In fact, one of the the things that stirred him, he'd finished his medical degree, he'd become a doctor, but he heard a a sermon and a presentation by another missionary from South Africa named Robert Moffat. And Moffat said in his sermon, I have sometimes seen in the morning sun in Africa the smoke of a thousand villages where no missionary has ever been. And that just captured Livingston, and he said, I have to go, along with just the scriptures called to make disciples of all nations. And so he he went to Africa and uh, spent his life there. It wasn't easy, it was very challenging. Uh, His body was racked again and again with the ravages of jungle fever, it took its toll on him over his life. Um, He was constantly in peril, he was often hungry, tired, he was uh, in peril from wild animals. He got attacked by a lion. There was a lion that was bothering the, a village, so he went out and shot the lion. Before the lion died, it leapt on him and bit his left shoulder. And for the rest of his life, his arm was kind of useless on the left side. And in his own words, he said, It shook me about as a terrier shakes a rat. <laughs> and it crushed him. But he survived. At the end of his life, he was carried around by, uh, by tribesmen who had come to love him, and he them. And it was all for the gospel. And so, in light of that, and in spite of all the trials, and even though he buried a son in Africa, and even though he buried his wife in Africa, he continued on because he believed, as he said, I am immortal until my work is accomplished. In other words, God is so sovereign and God is so big and so in control that that nothing can kill me As long as God has a purpose for me, there's no difficulties that can befall me that overrule God's plans and purposes. God's in charge of the day of my birth. God's in charge of the day of my death. If he has a work for me to do, I'm going to do it. And so there was a certain kind of calm fearlessness about David Livingston. I tell that story because as we look at the Apostle Paul here today in Acts 27, I was reminded of Livingston's words and of his life because Paul was a man who probably could have said, I am immortal until my work is accomplished. uh, The Apostle Paul, as we've been studying here in the book of Acts, lived just an amazing life of faith as he was used by God to bring the gospel into the Roman Empire and to the Gentile nations. He was a missionary par excellence uh, and taking great risks at times, going through all kinds of trials, and yet he kept going and kept going because he believed that God had a plan for him. In fact, Jesus had told him that he was going to go to Rome to preach before Caesar. And nothing was going to stop that. Nothing was going to get in the way of that plan for him. Not even a storm at sea and a shipwreck. So look at our text today, Acts 27, the famous story of Paul's storm at sea. We've got some good weather today. Perfect kind of ambiance for this story. Acts chapter 27 it says in verse one, "When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some of the other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramidium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. So just to remind us where we are, the Apostle Paul is in prison. He's been in prison now for two years. For preaching the Gospel, uh, he has appealed to Caesar, and so he's now going from Israel to Rome, where he's going to stand trial before Nero himself and uh, so he's now going by boat to rome and and this is going to be quite an exciting journey it 's probably one of the most exciting, harrowing stories in the book of acts and um, and it's a sea journey so if you look in your bulletin, I, I put something in there had our our uh, team put something in there for you this morning you 'll see a map. There's a map on the inside flap of that bulletin, and it's a map of the journey, and I think it'll help you because uh, so much of this journey is place names and places you and I have never heard of perhaps, but it'll show you kind of how this journey unfolds, so, so just kind of keep the map in one hand, the Bible in the other, and we're just going to bounce back and forth as we follow Paul on his journey So let's pick up again at verse 3. It says The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Then we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia. We landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion from an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. So if, if you look at your map, they're now up at Myra. So they went to Sidon and then to Myra, and that's where they got switched to a different ship. Uh, this Alexandrian ship is most likely an Alexandrian grain barge. Uh, in, in, we'll see later it carried grain uh, Most of Rome's grain and food came from Alexandria. So during the shipping times, there are these big barges. They're probably, I mean, not big by our standards, but big back then. Archaeologists have found some of these. Uh, There's things written about them in in ancient historical texts. But, But, you know, probably anywhere from like 150 to 200 feet long, big barges that could hold horses and grain and several hundred people. So they put Paul on board one of these because it was headed... To Rome. So Paul gets on board, picking up the story, verse 7. We made slow headway for many days and um, a difficulty arriving off Snidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete opposite Salmone. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lassia. Now, if you look at your map, you can see how from Snidus, from like Turkey, they sailed down to the southwest toward the island of Crete. The normal shipping lane, the normal path would have been to travel north of Crete to stay on the inside uh, toward the Aegean Sea. But because the winds were against them, so there's probably a strong northwest wind, this big barge, ancient technology, this was not a super navigable ship. And, And so they were pushed by the wind. They had to go south of Crete on the leeward side, and they come to this place called Fair Havens and now they had a choice to make. Verse 9, much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. Now, what's the fast? Well, he's talking about the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which typically in the lunar calendar would fall, and this is, you'll see why I'm going with this, this, is important. It would fall somewhere between the end of September and to early, mid-October. So somewhere in there is usually when the Day of Atonement is. So it's after that. So it's now most likely like late October sometime. The reason that's a problem is because come November, pretty much everybody in those days stopped sailing in the Mediterranean because it was simply too perilous. Uh, It it was just way too dangerous. There were too many storms. The water was too cold. In fact, uh, there was a date, November 11th, that, you know, the, uh, the saying was back then, on that day, the sea was closed. Don't travel the Mediterranean after November 11th. So, so that's what's happening here is now they've made it to Fair Havens. It's already been some rough weather. They know what time of year it is. They're right on the bubble of when everybody should just stay out of the Med. And, and so what are they gonna do? So verse nine, Paul warns them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous. And bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives as well. Paul's like, guys, we need to you know, not go on. Maybe stay here in Fairhaven. Maybe they need to backtrack a little bit. But verse 11, the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. And since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix in winter there. There was a harbor, that was a, this was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. So they wanted to make it to Phoenix, not that Phoenix, which would be a nice place to winter, but another Phoenix, an island in Crete, uh, uh, rather a harbor in Crete on the west side. We're not exactly sure where Phoenix was. Archaeologists have some ideas where it might have been. Anyway, so, so that was Paul's suggestion. And, and just by the way, it's a good reminder that even if you're living by faith, It doesn't mean you should do stupid stuff. (laughs) It's interesting, isn't it, that Paul is the guy who's trusting God. He's the guy who's had the vision from Jesus telling him that he's going to make it to Rome. But Paul is the conservative one. He's like, guys, I probably shouldn't sail this time of year. In other words, Paul could have been like, Jesus spoke to me. I'm going to make it to Rome. Therefore, full steam ahead, set sail. Let's just trust God. So, so, you know, having faith and believing that God can do miracles doesn't mean, therefore, be stupid and do any dumb thing you want because God will rescue me. You know, I, you know, nothing will happen to me until God's work is accomplished. Therefore, I can jump off this building. You know, it's like, no, you know, don't put God to the test. Don't put God to the test. So, just an insight there. Because I know some of us are like faith people. And we're like, believe big, trust big, do big, and some of us are like really conservative, rational, be safe, keep it safe, right? And, and my, own, my own thought is we need both those voices in the church. You know, we have a new group of elders who've just come on, a new elder board. And, and I love watching the elders, you know, who are the big faith elders? And who are the let's not be stupid elders? And, and you need both, right? To kind of steer a good course. And so you've got to have faith, but also God's given us a brain. And so here's Paul, the man of great faith, is like, dude's. Let's find a harbor, okay? Let's not press on. But who's going to listen to Paul? He's just a prisoner. So verse 13, they press on. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster. In Hebrew, that's Nor'easter. It swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. So, if you look at your map, you'll see—I don't know. Maybe some of you have good eyesight. Others of you are probably, you know, doing this thing. But look at the map. You see where Crete is? If you can see right below where the dot for Fair Havens is, which is actually a little out of place. Maybe you can see that the land kind of juts down there before to the west sort of receding up toward Phoenix. So, so that little jut is, is a piece of land called Cape Matala. The little recess past, west of Cape Matala is, is the Gulf of Masara. So m- what most likely happened was as they're just hugging the coastline and going around Cape Matala, and as they tried to turn north into the Gulf of Massara and just keep on the coastline, uh, that's when the nor'easter struck. So right where you see the dot for Fair Havens, there's a there's a mountain there. It's called Mount Ida. It's about eight thousand feet high. It's it's over eight thousand feet high. It's higher than Mount Washington. And people go there and people on Crete they hike it, and it's you know something cool to do. But but apparently in this, on this mountain there is a weather condition that happens called the Northeaster where this wind comes ripping down off the mountain and barreling into the Gulf of Masara. So what probably happened was as they rounded the bend of the Cape and started heading into that big gulf, one of these nor'easters, sorry, I just can't help but saying it that way, came roaring down the mountain and slammed into this big 150, 200 foot barge that was trying to chug up along the coast. And it just didn't have the wherewithal to keep a, a heading in it. So probably just pushed the nose of that barge to the south and started blowing it out to sea. You could just imagine that. I, I mean, what, what a terrifying circumstance. I'm sure sometimes when nor'easters are here in Boston, you've, you've probably done this. When they hit New England, maybe you've gone down to Hull, or maybe you've gone down to uh, Situate, uh, or maybe down to Burt's in Plymouth at the beach there and just watch the, the waves crash and come roaring in, and the power of the sea is so amazing. Imagine being trapped out in that, in a you know, first century A.D. bark, sailing along in this kind of storm. And it gets bad, verse 16, as we pass to the lee of a small island called uh, Kauda, we're hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So they have a little dinghy that goes with the thing, and they can't get that secure. Maybe it's getting swamped, who knows. And when the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together, fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. So if you look at your map again, you see where uh, down in the lower left-hand corner, there's the Great Sirtis. Do you see that? Th- that's a big gulf right off of the coast of Libya today. And the problem with the Sirtis is it's a, a rather shallow area where there are these sandbars and shifting sands because of the currents. These Sandbars would rise up and fall down and move. So, so if you were a ship sailing into the Sirtis, you could get stranded on a sandbar. But it's not like getting stranded on a sandbar, you know, like, couple hundred yards from shore, like, hey, help us, you know, all right, we're coming, right? Like like you could literally be stranded on a sandbar several days' sail from land. In other words, you're dead. <laughs> you're gonna die of dehydration. You're not gonna get to land. And so it was a, a rather terrifying place for ships because you could be miles and miles off the coast, perhaps even out of sight of land, and stranded on a sandbar. Very bad. So the sailors are, f- are afraid of that. It's, it's almost a kind of certain death. And so they do something with the ship. It's tough to translate the Greek there. It, we're not, you know, scholars aren't 100% sure what they did with the ship. It was some kind of technical uh, sailor language in Greek. But anyway, they, they do something to try to make the ship keep going west rather than getting slammed down into the Sirtis. So it's bad. That's the bottom line. Verse 18, we took such a battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. They're trying to lighten the ship. Probably is taking on water. It's getting beat up. Verse 19, on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. That's desperate times. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. This was not just a rough day at sea. They figured we're dead. Something's going to happen. The ship's going to give. Too much water is going to be taken on. Who knows? But we have no hope. No one's going to find us. We are lost at sea. No one will ever know what happened to this boat. It's a dark moment in this story. I think sometimes we have this idea that if we follow Jesus, that if we follow God, and we commit ourselves fully to the Lord, and we say, Lord, I'll do whatever you say. I'll go wherever you go. My life is yours. I think sometimes we think that in exchange for that, God takes the problems and difficulties out of our life. You know, like, Lord, I'm yours. And he's like, great. You know, and and we're not going to have any struggles. We're not going to have trials. God is going to answer our prayers. Everything's going to be Great. In fact, there's a whole theology built up around this. Uh, it's, it's often called the prosperity gospel. I don't know if you've heard that phrase. It's here in the States. It's a, it is a viral plague in Africa and Southeast Asia and South America, and it's here in the States as well. And in the basically, prosperity gospel theology says is if you have enough faith and you trust God and you believe... God will bless you with health, wealth, and prosperity and everything. And if you don't have health, wealth, and prosperity, it's because you haven't had faith enough, you haven't asked the right way, you haven't trusted God enough. And it's this idea that God blesses those who trust Him, and, and so if you're not having your blessing, well, then you haven't trusted enough or something like that. And it's, it's just a false gospel, and it destroys people's faith. You have to be on guard against that. So here's Paul. I mean, this Paul gave his life for the gospel, and he's now in this terrible situation. The reality is that bad things do happen to people who love Jesus a lot. Trials do come. Not always, but sometimes they do. And sometimes God saves us out of them in dramatic ways, but sometimes He doesn't. You know, that was Paul's experience. You read the story of Paul. It's not a happy, cushy, you know, fluffy unicorn, rainbow kind of story. It was really hard, this life that he had. David Livingston is an incredible man of God who, who loved the African people and brought the gospel to them and, and stood against slave trade. I mean, he was an amazing man of God, but he had a hard, hard life there in Africa. There's another David, as a guy I know, he's in uh, the Middle East Uh, His name's David Furman. He's a pastor there. He's actually a pastor at the church, Redeemer Church in Dubai, where where I've had the privilege of preaching twice. It's a church where our intern Blaine is going, um, hopefully this fall, Lord willing. And uh, Dave Furman, when he and his wife, Gloria, decided to go to the Middle East, just about a month before they're about to go... His arms kind of stopped working. He was having trouble with his arms. He couldn't lift things. And so they, they went to the doctor. They thought they figured it out. They thought he was healed. So then he went to the Middle East, to Dubai, to plant this church. And then it wasn't healed. And when he got there, uh, it, it started happening again. And, and they discovered he has a neurological disorder that affects uh, his arms. It gives him pain and it makes his arms weak. So, so as a result, he can't lift more than four pounds. So he can't open a door. He can't drive a car, he can't put on a seatbelt, he can't write with a pen, he can't put on his shoes or his belt or his shirt, he can't button a shirt, and so his, you know, his family has to dress him every day, and when you hang out with him, you know, he'll, he'll get a package that he can't open and he'll just hand it to you, and everyone around him is just trained, you know, they do it for him, and, and he just keeps talking. If you go to shake his hand, he'll give you a fist bump, um, and, and it's, it's not been fixed, It's been 10 years, and he's had four surgeries and 12 procedures, and he's still living in chronic pain and weakness. And I just think about that, and I'm like, you know, Lord, I guess, isn't David like one of these guys who's doing what Christians should be doing? Isn't he like, you know, a saint almost if we believed in such things? Isn't he like an ideal Christian? Why do you give him that affliction? Like, if you were just in heaven, Lord, and you had this extra affliction sitting around, you didn't know who to give it to. Like, let me know. I've got some people to suggest to you. <laughs> Maybe you do too. <laughs> why did you give it to the, the guy who's all in, who's put all his chips in for the gospel, and, and other people who, who could care less about Jesus seem to have hit life's lottery? Like, why is that, Lord? Why is that happening? Is it, is it David didn't have enough faith? Is it David's not praying the right way? Is it just a spiritual attack of the devil that has to be renounced? Lord, what is it that you've done? But God allows his servants to go through difficulties and trials. Just because the Lord opens a door, as was preached here by Dave Como several months ago, just because the Lord opens a door doesn't mean it's going to be smooth sailing. It doesn't mean it's going to be an easy path. You can be doing God's will, and it can still be hard. And challenging. And so that's where Paul finds himself. You know, what, what does it say in Psalm 23? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you shall beam me out of it. <laughs> now, what does it really say? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So, So it's a promise in Psalm 23 not that we get evacuated out of our problems, although the Lord does do that sometimes in answer to prayer. Praise God when he does. But not always. And sometimes his presence is through the valley. It's his comfort in the midst of the valley. And so, Paul is there on the ship in this trial. It could be that in the next five to ten years, Christians in America are in for a storm. I'm not a prophet. I am not prophesying. I'm just using my common sense. It could happen. As, As things move legally with the Supreme Court decision. If, if the Supreme Court's decision then gets wed to laws about discrimination, who knows what where we will be in five to ten years, it could be very stormy. It's going to show who really follows Jesus and who's just a Sunday Christian. But in the midst of it, we don't have to be afraid because the Lord is with us, just as He was with Paul in the circumstance and in in, in The Lord encouraged Paul and strengthened Paul. Look at verse 21. It said, After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have been spared yourself this damage and loss. Told you so. (laughs) But now I urge you to keep up your courage. Why? Why would you have courage? because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood before me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. It's still not going to be easy. The way we're getting out of this is a shipwreck, but God has told me that he's with us, and God, in this case, has told him the outcome. We don't always know the outcome. This is a a case where it happened, where God revealed something to Paul. And so Paul's encouraging them. He's strengthening them. He's giving them confidence. So verse 27, on the 14th night, We are still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. When about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. And just before dawn, Paul urged them to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and you've gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. And after he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. And then he broke it and began to eat. And they were all encouraged and ate some food for themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. And So the ship is emptied of everything, even the grain. And now it's just floating as light as possible. And it's a beautiful picture of Paul here in the midst of a really horrible circumstance, ministering to people, encouraging people, praying for people, strengthening people, right? There's a contrast here between the sailors who are so self-interested, they're willing to sneak off the ship to save their hide rather than, than try to save the others. And here's Paul, the prisoner, the lowly prisoner, who's now just rising in influence and authority. He's starting to give directions. He's starting to command the ship, and, and he's telling them to be encouraged, and they need food, and it's gonna be okay. You know, when, when you believe in the sovereignty of God, when you have a deep sense that God is in control, when, when God's sovereignty is the ballast that keeps you upright as a Christian in the storm, it really does free you to care for other people in bad circumstances, because you're not just panicked holding on to your life. You, you say, I know God has a plan. And, and so even in, in a storm at sea, so to speak, literally or metaphorically, you're able to look around and look at the needs of others because you know God's got your life in His hands. And, and you're free to minister to people and to, to care for people. You know, like I said, I don't know where our nation's going. I don't know what it means for the church. But in some ways, it doesn't matter because our mission is the same to tell the gospel, and to minister to and love the people that God brings into our lives. I mean, that's how it was before the Supreme Court decision. That's how it was going to be after. It's the same calling. And we have different climate. We might be in a storm. We might be in sunny days. But our mission is the same, to tell people the good news of Jesus, to love people, to be kind to people, to pray, to provide, to meet needs. It's the same Christian life. And we're free to do it because we're not worried. We can trust the sovereignty of God that he provides for his people. So verse 39, when daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could, cutting loose the anchors. They left them in the sea at the same time, untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind. It looks like they kept one sail on the ship and made for the beach. But when the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground, but, but the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping, because if a soldier lost a prisoner, then the soldier could be killed. Verse 43. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered that those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land, the rest uh, where to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land in safety. And so they, they came ashore, verse 1 of t- chapter 28. Once safely on shore, we found out the island was called Malta. And you can see on the map where Malta is. Can you believe that ship pushed by the storm landed on Malta? That's what we call finding a needle in a haystack. Again, the sovereign hand of God. Going back to the text, the islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. And Paul gathered a pile of brushwood and as he put it on the fire, a viper driven out by the heat fastened itself on his hand. And When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer for though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up suddenly or fall dead, suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. <laughs> so so at first they think like, ah, you can't outrun justice. But now they, they think, oh, he must be someone special if he could shake off a, a viper. And and so, again, we see here's... So even though the story is going like this and and the shipwreck and everything went to pot, well, Paul's story kind of goes like this, doesn't it? You know, he starts off as just this lowly prisoner and no one pays any attention to him, but then he's, like, encouraging people and then he's telling people what to do and he's giving the centurions orders and now he's on Malta and they think he's a god, right? Verse 7 gets even better. There was an estate nearby that belonged to... Publius, the chief official of the island, he welcomed us to his home and for three days entertained us hospitably. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went to see him and after a prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. And when this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. Paul is sent off with with support and cheers. His, His star continues to rise. And he emerges finally in Italy in Rome. Verse 11, just to finish the story. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in, on the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there, we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day, the south wind came up, and on the following day, we reached Puteoli. There, we found some brothers who invited us to spend a week with them, and so we came to Rome. The brothers there had heard we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the Three Taverns to meet us. At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. And when we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Rome at last. Rome, sweet Rome. So God is made faithful to his word. God's mission is that Paul will preach in Rome, and so he is in Rome, and nothing can stop that. Nothing can stop the plans of our sovereign God. And so we can trust him. We can believe that he says that if we go into all the world and make disciples, that he'll be with us always to the end of the age. We can believe God when he says, if we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, that he'll take care of our needs. Maybe not everything we want, but he'll he'll uphold us. He'll he'll protect us. You can believe that if you repent and believe in Jesus, you will be saved from your sins. Everything God says is true, and nothing can stop his word, not even a storm. He's sovereign over all of it. What an awesome God. And so, Paul emerges as this kind of conquering hero, this this great mighty man rising up out of the sea (laughs) They thought him dead, and, and now he's, he's this Lord, he's this godlike figure emerging from death and emerging from doom. They thought he should have died from the sea and the snake, but now he's alive and he's honored. That's what God does. One final thought. There is one great storm still coming to the world. Someday, the true judge will make the final ruling, and the great storm of God's judgment will come upon this world, and and nobody will be able to sustain themselves in that storm. Nobody will escape. The storm of God's judgment for our sin will find us, but the amazing news is that Just as those people who were with Paul were saved, so if you are with Jesus, you will be saved from that storm. It's the only way. It's the only way to escape the coming storm of God's judgment. Jesus, like Paul, or maybe Paul like Jesus, was the innocent sufferer who went down into the depths, except not just a storm at sea. He was crucified, he was buried, And just as Paul came up out of the ocean, so to speak, and and survived miraculously, so Jesus Christ rose from the dead and he came back from the dead and he ascended to heaven where he is honored. He's not just like a God, he is God. And all those who are attached to Christ who will put their faith in the word of Jesus and the gospel will be rescued from the coming storm of God's judgment. And so I just encourage you, Don't be selfish. Don't take matters into your own hands. Don't try to form your own lifeboat. Don't try to sneak away. Put your faith in Christ. He alone is our hope. It's to Him that the Word of God has been given. It's to Him that salvation, in Him salvation is found. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to gather together as a church one more time and profess our faith in you, that you are sovereign God, that you rule over everything. Lord, we come before you this morning. Each of us have different anxieties, things we're worried about. Maybe some of us here are riddled with fear. And God, we just pray that you would give us a great glimpse of your sovereign care for our lives, that you're with us even in the midst of the storm. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to bring to you our prayers and petitions and that the peace of God would guard our hearts and our minds. Oh, Lord, we just pray that your presence would be with us. We pray for us to have wisdom as a church in the days ahead. God, give us great faith. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know Jesus, Lord, would you work in their heart, would you show them that Jesus is truly trustworthy, that he is the conquering hero, that Paul's life is but a faint echo of the great salvation that Jesus brings. O Lord, show us that the day of judgment is coming. Help us to to fear that more than any human court. And God, we pray that our hearts and our minds would be right with you and that we'd give ourselves fearlessly to serve you. O Lord, I pray that you would speak and that you would call. I pray that you would be calling people in our church to be your missionaries and your voices into the world. Lord, I pray that even now in this room, Lord, you might call somebody in this room to go somewhere for you, and that, Lord, they would be assured of your presence. And so, Lord, continue to send us, whether it's across the lunchroom or across the office or across the street or around the world, continue to send us as we trust in your sovereign care. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In the Lord's Supper this morning. Thank you, Pastor Jeremy. It's interesting as we're listening to today's passage, and and I just see so many parallels from the beginning of time